This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name is Lena Rodent, Head of Content for Walk Strategy. And today we're talking about personalization. Now, personalization at scale has been in vogue for several decades now. But with the demise of the cookie and data privacy concerns, marketers are rethinking this approach. And new research suggests that personalization is actually adding layers of complexity, as well as costs to advertising campaigns, and so may not turn out to be value for money after all. To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Breely, marketing consultant, and Mike Taylor, founder of Vex Power. Sam and Mike, earlier this summer, co-authored a paper, Anti-Personalization, the best ad for one is the best ad for all. And this, this article has really landed very well with our audience, as well as on social, such as marketing, Twitter, and beyond. So I'd like to welcome you, Sam and Mike, to the Walk podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, good to be here. Great to have you both. So look, without further ado, let's dive in. So I think a good place to start is to actually ask why you both felt the need to do this research and write this article. To give you a bit of background, me and Mike, initially our relationship on Twitter was quite confrontational. We were both <laughs> very much coming from um, two different camps. Mike's got the startup and tech background and lives in you know, major cities. I don't. I live in the sticks. I work with small businesses. Most barely know how to use Microsoft Office, uh, let alone know what you know tech is really. So we came from two very different camps and that naturally created a bit of conflict in terms of our approaches. But actually, after hashing it out and talking with each other, private messages and also on the phone, we realized there was a lot of common ground. And I think that is always the case. It's just kind of the language that's used is slightly different. And when we start to talk about the impacts of our work and how we approach our work, actually, a lot of it was was quite similar. So we both thought, well, hang on a minute. We've got two different camps here. Let's put that together and come to some kind of conclusion as such in terms of feeling like we we kind of covered all bases from a theoretical point of view and a more practical, formalized marketing point of view to the, you know, messy startup tech heavy side of things. I think that sums it up, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we're one of the rare examples of uh, Twitter arguments uh, just turning into real life friendships, which is actually less rare than than people might think looking at marketing Twitter these days. All right. Okay. So that's really interesting. So Mike, you were more kind of performance background, scale up, and Sam, you're a bit more traditional camp. So it is actually really nice to see a bit of coming together. And what has resulted is a really nice and interesting piece of research that you know people can really apply in their day-to-day work. All right. So before we you know, get stuck into the actual thrust of the paper, I think it'd be useful to start by defining what you mean by personalization and segmentation and why they are different. I included a case study from uh, the very early days of when I started my agency uh, in the paper. So, you know, and and I came from, you know, a self-taught marketing background. I'm a performance marketer uh, and I've had to kind of learn a lot of this stuff just from first principles, just from my own testing. And, you know, I probably could have learned this a lot quicker if I had done a more traditional education like Sam has. And like uh, I recommend a lot of people do. You know, one of the things I started to see was uh, when we were testing ads uh, for, say, the client was Money Dashboard in, in the paper. Uh, a fintech app, we found that 
you know, despite what everyone says that you should split the audience up into different segments and you target the students with a different message, you know, target, um, you know, stay at home mums with a different message, target all these different segments with a different message, which makes you sound very smart in meetings. Actually, when we found an ad that worked for one segment, we'd roll it out to other segments and it would work there too. So that was, I think, where we came up with the title, like the best ad for one is the best ad for all. Um, and that sentiment um, is just something that we found again and again in the data. Um, and then talking to Sam, you know, is something that is also echoed, I think, in a lot of the marketing literature as well. Yeah, definitely. And as well, from a practical experience point of view, I've seen the same things. So the campaigns and things I work, I've worked on in the past are for, again, they're for smaller businesses. A lot of them don't really collect data. They don't have data warehouses. It's very kind of scrappy, messy stuff with kind of legacy attitudes towards how to do marketing and advertising. But typically what I found is that, you know, that strong creative and, and decent understanding of who your target customer is, is, is actually often all you need. If you have a good understanding of what the message is supposed to be, who you're trying to actually communicate to, you don't need to overcomplicate it by having lots of different test and learn style messaging, you know, and sometimes the budget just isn't there. So especially for small businesses, they can't actually afford to keep testing and learning. So often people say it's cheaper, but actually it's often not. At least that's been my my practical experience. It's better to just invest in something that is a strong piece of creative and spend the time understanding people. Uh, and that sounds kind of wishy-washy, but it, it's not. It's making sure you're doing your market research properly and not making assumptions. And I think sometimes with things like personalization or, or testing and learning, people fire the gun before even putting the bullets in. So they don't they just put stuff out and go, well, let's just put stuff out and see what the response is rather than talking to people first and then putting stuff out based on, on what information they found out about those, those customers. So Sam, for those that haven't read the article, can you talk us through the key arguments within the paper? Yeah. So the, um, the key arguments, I mean, there's, there's quite a few to be fair, but the main one is that people are, are over segmenting people, in my opinion, tend to segment as a process rather than as a means to make more money. And to clarify what I mean by that is a lot of marketers and a lot of agencies, and a lot of people will look at segmentation as an exercise that needs to be done. And they will try to segment things on differences full stop rather than looking for the meaningful differences within things. And, you know, we've seen the works of EBI and Byron Sharp and, and many others, to be fair, that good segmentation is about finding meaningful differences. And it's not necessarily only meaningful differences in terms of those people that you're trying to communicate to, but also from the business point of view, which is that segment has to be a valuable segment to the business. And the danger of over-segmentation is that you end up with just this, this massive pool of, of, of multiple different customer groups. And really, you can't do anything with that. You're kind of quite limited. So Segmentation, really, in an SME context, what I tend to use segmentation for is is basically old school funnel planning. So there'll be a bottom of of um, bottom of funnel segment, which will probably be, be customers that are closer to the physical location of a business, those who have more money, those who are similar to existing customers. That's one segment, and then there'll be a mid funnel segment, which may be people who are kind of interested in it, and and so on and so forth. So the thing is with segmentation is there are a million ways to do it, but the the point what I think we both wanted to make here was that you shouldn't just segment because you can. You should really think about what you're trying to actually achieve with with segmentation. It's supposed to be a tool that you use as a marketer or a 
an agency or whoever to drive revenue and create you know profitability for for businesses that that's really the point of doing it it's not just a case of just segmenting for the sake of of segmentation you know one of the things i saw early on when you know facebook ads had first come out and uh, you could actually segment by likes and interests is people went a bit mad with it they <laughs> uh, they started to build these micro segments and they said okay well you know people who live in this village with you know, blonde hair who like Beyonce, and you know they would uh, they would build all these different like you know, in some cases thousands of audiences. And um, when you when you looked at it, it was uh, you know, operationally incredibly difficult to manage. Um, you couldn't manage it uh, with just you know a handful of people. You had to build automation uh, into the platform. Um, you know, you had to in some cases write custom code or create kind of custom Excel templates to manage all of that. And uh, and at first, I was really attracted to that too, because uh, I come from a technical data-driven background. Um, and and it does, you know, it sells, like that approach sells uh, to the clients because they think, great, we're doing all this sophisticated stuff. We must be getting good results. And then my career has really just been, you know, just a journey of undoing all of that damage early on. Um, and you know, realizing that, you know, you shouldn't be getting like heavy into automation until you're, you know, actually spending a significant amount of money. And uh, it doesn't make sense to do all of these micro segments if you don't have a good understanding of the fundamentals of, you know, what type of customer buys. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's probably not worth all of the extra effort to maintain these campaigns if, you know, the same creative is going to work across every single segment. So, Really, it's just been a case of me learning that the hard way. And then eventually, uh, now kind of getting into traditional marketing literature, talking to people like Sam and realizing that, you know, there's a real kind of science underpinning that finding. Great. Okay. Thank you. And Mike, do you want to summarize the findings from the case study? Yeah, sure. I can, I can cover that. So this is really interesting, actually, because it was our very first client uh, when we started the agency. And it was, when I say agency, it was really just me and uh, my old boss. <laughs> uh, he was managing the clients and, and I was doing all the optimization. So uh, at, at this stage, um, and we eventually grew to 50 people, but you know, through, through that whole journey, the first case study was really the most instructive. So it's the one I, I keep coming back to because it kind of happened upon uh, something that uh, we repeated again and again, and, and it worked every time. So we came into this business. They had, I think it was five or six different consultants or agencies working on different things. They had blogging, like content. They had like an email team. They were doing Facebook ads, Google ads, affiliate marketing, really the full gamut of, of things. But uh, you know, there were ten thousand customers. They wanted to get to fifty thousand. So I'd, you don't really actually need to do that much. You, you, it's, it's not a huge chasm to cross at that stage. Um, you know, they were trying to get to 50,000 users in order to do a series A funding round. So what we found was as we took on more and more of the business and uh, we just simplified it and streamlined it. So, you know, we came in, we had, uh, you know, 20, I think it was 20 different audiences on Facebook ads that, that uh, they were testing. Uh, we cut that down to just the top ones that were working. Um, and then that gave us more latitude to focus on creative testing. Uh, eventually, we ended up turning off pretty much every other marketing channel, which maybe is something that the literature and, and traditional marketing doesn't agree with. But but we found that just focusing on Facebook ads actually got us uh, to that goal in and of itself. So um, we had a 109 times increase in weekly app installs that we were driving, um, whilst also decreasing the cost per user at the, at the same time. Uh, so 
and that was really just uh, this finding that we that we that we said. You know, we we kept testing ads. We found that best ad would work well in every category. We would limit the number of uh, audience categories that we were targeting, and eventually we just uh, were targeting a broad audience with uh, you know the one ad and, and a couple of variations of that ad uh, that was working best, and that's what got us there. And they managed to raise uh, a three point five million dollar Series A. Great. Thank you. Thank you for running us through that, Mike. And is there anything you'd like to add there, Sam? Yeah, just, you know, a mirror experience, really, which is obviously Mike's working with startups and, and it is a different world. But again, the principles and the, the basics are the same. It's always the case. And that's basically what me and Mike found through talking things through was actually it's a lot of it's really similar. And I guess two examples for me is I worked on an NHS recruitment campaign a few years ago and recently a recruitment campaign as well. So segmentation in that regard is understanding the kinds of people that you want to fill certain positions. So we spent a good, on both projects, a good three months actually doing, you know, qual and quant interviews with people who are currently in those positions and really trying to understand the motivations as to why they were in the roles that they were in and then using that information to, to feed into the messaging to fill those recruitment gaps. And both times it, it worked. The most recent example, they had chronic issues at one recruitment site, issues that had been going back three years. And within three months, we tripled the amount of job applications they were getting. And they were good job applications as well. And it's carried through as well. So it was an incremental change. It wasn't just a, a short-term uplift. And the creative in that was just two videos that were basically quite fluffy. It was, you know, quote unquote brand-led stuff that was about why it's a nice place to work why people like working there. And, and that did the ticket. It wasn't any more complicated than that. And we also had some Google ads running as well. So for people who are maybe desperate for a job or, or looking to move quickly, we had that as well. So you're kind of covering a few bases there in terms of, you know, the funnel, but it worked and it didn't need to be any more complicated than that. That There was no reason to, to, to target, you know, men and women differently or different nationalities a certain way or, or or anything like that. It was basically just, we know the catchment area. We know where people are going to travel from. It's 25 kilometers within uh, from the site. We know that most of them are going to be using public transport. So we have to make sure that we address those those potential barriers in the creative. And, and that should remove any any reason not to inquire for the job or at least you know, express some interest in it. So yeah, again, I, I think it doesn't have to be complicated. And like Mike, I started in digital marketing. That is where I started. And I just started studying um, at the Char Chartered Institute of Marketing at, at the same time, whilst working full-time employed. And all I did basically was just start applying what I'd learned in the, in the textbooks and in my, in my sessions. And it just made my work better. So there was no reason for me to question that. But I did start questioning a lot of the, the narratives coming out of the press and out of quote unquote, best practice at the time, especially around 2016. I think it was particularly um, bad, but I think we're, we're moving in the right direction anyway, which is, which is good. Yeah. I think we're moving away from like having two separate camps. Cause I think both say what would be called performance marketers and traditional brand led marketers are realizing that there's a lot to learn from each other and a lot to both experiences, you know, they can benefit each other. So in the paper, you talk about how the needs of a brand changes as it grows from scale up to expand to middle funnel and activity. And eventually, as it continues to grow onto large scale brand advertising, and we've, we've already touched upon that. But do you want to flesh that out a little bit more? Because I think that's really interesting. 
I think this is really the thread that runs um, through a lot of the conflict that you see on social media uh, when young upstart performance marketers are being chided by uh, traditional marketing experts and and uh, you know vice versa. Um, and it's it's really because we're focusing on different stages. So uh, and this took me a long time to realize, uh, but you know, in in kind of trying to respect the literature and, and reading more about you know reading more marketing papers, kind of I, I did um, Mark Ritson's. Uh, mini MBA recently as well, which was really illuminating. And uh, and what I've realized is when you are managing a large brand and you're in the top, you know, two or three brands in your category, uh, then the rules are very different. I think you, you know, the, the, you're not going to make your quarter focusing on performance marketing. You know, the quarter that you're seeing right now was actually baked in you know, last year or you know, over the past 10 years in, in a lot of ways, because you've been doing consistent brand advertising over a long period, uh, because uh, you were reaching those consumers in the market that weren't quite ready to buy yet, or maybe they're buying a uh, competitor as, as it is. And and once you realize that that's what you're focused on in brand marketing, uh, all of the insights, all of the advice, the best practice makes a lot more sense uh, to us performance marketers, um, because we're you know we're scrapping in uh, in the you know tiny in market segment, right? Where we're trying to reach people right as they decide to buy, and therefore the rules for for how to do that are very different as well. We focus a lot on optimization. Uh, and uh, we focus a, a lot on kind of uh, trying to get a conversion, trying to uh, measure a conversion and measure the results of our campaigns. And um, and ultimately, that's a lot easier to do when the customer is right about to purchase or is looking to make that purchase. So I, I think uh, a lot of the criticisms that performance marketers give to traditional brand marketers about uh, measurement and attribution uh, really uh, fall on deaf ears because you know how do you measure the long-term effect of brand? It's not, it's not, it's you know, it's, there is some science to it, but um, it's not, it's not really a settled subject. So I, I think um, defining upfront like what stage companies in when you give advice, uh, particularly on social media or in, even in these um, in these posts or, or on podcasts, I think is very important uh, because uh, you know you're going to be giving very different advice. If uh, if you're working on kind of a small startup that might not be here in ten years, and therefore uh, it might be a waste uh, for them to invest in brand before they even know what their brand is going to be. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Sam, any build on that? I totally agree with that. It's 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 really just a case of context. You know, a start all a startup is is it's a small business that's got a different label. That and 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 with small businesses, they're often perpetual startups. You know, it's cash flow that that runs the business. They, they don't have the time or the money or the energy or the resources internally to manage large brand campaigns. And some businesses, frankly, don't want to grow to that level. They just want to maintain maintain things as they are. So Mike's absolutely correct in that you do, you do get these funny spats between people. And often it's people in both camps, but they're both living in kind of a bubble, ivory towers. You know, it's someone who's a perpetual big shop agency guy who's got very strong opinions about law-like purchase patterns and keeps quoting uh, Byron Sharp all the time. And then you've got scrappy tech guy who hasn't left Shoreditch for 10 years saying that performance is the only way to do things. And the reality is that it's it's somewhere in the middle. And sometimes it's, it is just doing both at the same time. And I don't think as well that there, there's always some chatter about what is brand versus performance. And Les Bennett himself has said that, you know, something that's a brand-led campaign should still drive immediate results. So that that's one thing I definitely have a big issue with, which is a lot of people trying to cop out of doing 
decent stuff by saying, well, it's brand led, so it doesn't have to make an impact straight away. I think that performance versus brand debate is more about which part of the funnel you're addressing. It's which kind of segment or part of the market that you're addressing rather than anything else. And again, you know, I've worked with plenty of freelancers who will do that performance marketing stuff because I know that the segment of the market that's most easy to convert needs that kind of approach. And then the the wider market, you know, that needs the softer stuff, that needs the brand-led stuff, that needs the story, the messaging, the consistency over six months and more, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just different. It's just different tools for different jobs. I think both sides can learn something though, because there's definitely more measurement and more kind of data-informed decision-making that could go on in the in the brand camp. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think uh, saying that it's going to have a long-term impact is is an excuse uh, <laughs> right? um, for, for poor performance, right? Um, nobody wants to admit the, the creative that they just spent millions of pounds on is, is, is not working, right? Um, and, and, yeah, most uh, CMOs are out of a job after four or five years, right? Like it's the shortest tenure in, in the C-suite. So uh, I think it is a little bit suspicious when uh, people say, yeah, no, it's a long-term brand effects, uh, but you know, by the time we measure it, I won't be here. <laughs> um, so uh, you could build a whole career out of that. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, performance marketers, uh, what I've realized is, uh, you know, we have a we have an attribution problem running the other way. Uh, we're focusing a lot on short-term performance, and uh, and a lot of that segmentation, kind of micro-targeting and uh, data-driven decision-making, uh, is also false when you look into it. When you look at it, like the reason why Facebook ads work so well is uh, is because a lot of it is retargeting. Uh, you know, it's it's targeting people who are already ready to buy. You know, a lot of the reason why Google Ads works so well is because a lot of it is bidding on brand terms. Uh, you know, people already searching for your brand. And when you look really deeply into who's actually buying and you do figure out your attribution, which is very difficult, uh, you'll find that a lot of performance marketing is getting the results uh, from just finding people who are ready to buy, not necessarily making them more likely to buy. Uh, which is the goal of brand advertising. So um, I think both camps are wrong. And uh, and uh, there's a lot more, I think, a lot more in common between a good performance marketer and a good brand marketer uh, than there is, uh, you know, then there are differences between the two professions. Agree, agree. Loved that discussion. Uh, in some ways, you made it sound really simple, but you've also... Well, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to get it that simple. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> taken ten, 10 years of banging my head against the wall to come to these insights. The thing is, people probably told me this when I was just starting out and and I ignored them, I bet. Yeah, well, no, you, you guys have articulated it very well. Thank you. And I think it's always worth keeping in mind, we know the power of a strong brand. So investment in brand, you know, if you get it right, it really does pay off because it brings multiple benefits. All right. So I'm interested in, you guys spoke about the definition of brand is secure in future cash flows. I guess this was really me trying to associate a business outcome to the term brand. And again, when people say brand health or brand, it's it's such a catch-all phrase that doesn't necessarily mean much. And again, that's why people who say performance marketing they kind of start on a better foot because immediately performance makes you think money. Yeah. Well, well, all marketing is supposed to perform, right? <laughs> well, exactly. So securing future cash flows is, in, in my, my experience, is about if you're running a strong brand-led creative campaign, there will be a post-campaign increase in, in revenue in terms of sales that, that carries on. 
after that campaign is done. If you switch off Google Ads, those those leads or inquiries will stop coming in. It's as simple as that. But if you run a really strong creative campaign that really resonates within the the market that you're trying to trying to communicate to, there's going to be an impact later down the line that you should see in those incremental sales or in profitability if that's what you're trying to do. So again, a good example of of, of a strong brand-led campaign for a small business would be something that positions them in a certain way and makes them and makes basically just reassures the local community that if you pay a slightly higher amount of money for them, you're going to get better service, which is which is possible for small businesses to do because so many compete on price. So yes, it is about securing future cash flows as in literally just cash flow, but it can be used to improve profitability as well, which you can't do with um, performance branding because often people are, you know, well, you just you just can't. You need to be able to to use something that's a bit more of a human touch to convince people to to part with more money than rationally able. Yeah, the way I see it is it's trying to win the battle before the war started, right? So performance marketing is is really vicious. And, you know, if you don't have very, very good, well-optimized creative, you're not going to be able to outbid uh, the other people in that auction. So uh, it's very much like uh, kind of doing, you know, financial trades, right? Like uh, actually a lot of the people that I worked with in my first job were people that would have otherwise worked in finance, uh, but but ended up landing in marketing uh, instead because marketing was becoming more financialized in that respect. If you think about it, uh, you there's two ways to win, right? One is to work really, really hard to get good at fighting <laughs> in, in that battle. And the other is to avoid the battle entirely. So uh, the way I think about this is, um, you know, if someone searches for cheap flights on, on Google and, um, you know, then, uh, then all of the flight providers are competing for that person. But if um, Airbnb have done a really good job at branding, then they're going to be kind of top of mind after the person's booked the flight. They're going to be top of mind for booking, right? They uh, that person after they've bought their flight, they they're going to go onto the hotel. They're not going to search on Google for the hotel. They might search directly in Airbnb instead, right? So uh, no matter how good Booking.com is optimizing the PPC campaigns, and they're very very good at performance marketing, Airbnb has already won the battle because they've branded. They, you know, they own some space in that consumer's mind. So they're not even going to search on Google. Like Booking.com doesn't have a chance uh, to even compete. And I think that that's something that Booking has also realized. Um, you know, they uh, we did some work with them, but but on the B two B side. But uh, one of the big things uh, for them, they've talked about publicly, is they're now starting to invest a lot more in brand advertising because they're completely saturated and dominated Google. You know, they're Google's biggest customer, spending uh, billions of dollars a year. But, uh, you know, they're losing the battle before it begins to Airbnb. So um, I think they've recognized the value of brand, uh, of kind of capturing that customer before they even get into the market. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think you'd see that across any competitors, really, because, again, using I always use the funnel as the analogy because everyone knows what the funnel is. If you've got that funnel, you've got the Airbnb funnel, which is full. They've got media that addresses all stages of that funnel, of that market. And then you've got Booking.com, which is really good at pick, picking the fruit but not watering the tree, to use a Mark Ritson analogy. And, and it really is as simple as that. People do try to overcomplicate this decision and, and and say, oh, you know, is it this? Is it that? It's like, well, no, it's it's using a bit of everything and you shouldn't neglect parts of that that marketing funnel you've, you've got to address all of it whether you are a small or a large business and i guess a, a good a good personal example of this is this paper that me and mike have written it wasn't just because we wanted to share information with the community yes we did but also there is an incentive for us to do it from a professional point of view and for me writing articles writing pieces it, that's something that secures 
future cash flow because that's where I get inquiries. I don't pick up the phone to people. I don't ring around. I don't do direct mail. I write stuff. I, I try and get opinions out there and then see what reaction that is. And then people see stuff, read it, and then they come to me and say, I read this, really like the way you think, let's work together. So that's a that's a, a very simple example of something that's you know brand-based. I don't have any Google ads or anything. And my website is super simple. It's just links to how to contact me essentially and, and see me on Twitter. And maybe if I did run some Google ads, it would work, but I don't think it would. I think I'd be getting the wrong kinds of customers. I think I'd be getting people that are looking for cheap and easy services. Uh, which is not where I position myself because I tend to focus more on the strategic stuff and research and those kinds of things anyway. So again, it all it all just depends on your goals. You know, it isn't necessarily a wrong or a, a right way to do it. And I know, again, plenty of people that do, you know, Google PPC, they're Google PPC freelancers and they use Google PPC to advertise themselves and they do it in a creative way. They'll say, don't waste money like I'm doing on PPC, hire me and I'll do it properly. And they like, <laughs> they can still be creative with it. You know, I, I think there's this, there's this idea that if it's performance-based, it can't be creative as well, which I think is, is, is nonsense. I think, you know, good messaging can, can carry through across brand and, and performance and it, sh- and it should do. Yeah. So Sam, actually we saw the same thing. So, you know, we were a little bit unusual for an agency in that, um, you know, most agencies, I think, get uh, the majority of their clients through their network, right? Or the network of the partners and um, or they hire someone that used to work at uh, P&G and then they introduce all the friends from P&G, uh, you know, whatever, uh, however these backroom meetings go. Uh, but for us, uh, we didn't have any of that. I'm not particularly good at networking. <laughs> uh, most of my uh, attempts uh, turn into uh, arguments on Twitter. But um, but what we did, uh, what we were good at is writing content. And uh, we had um, 60% of our leads come directly from blog posts. Um, and then 90% of people uh, we talked to um, uh, said that they mentioned the blog at least once um, uh, when, the, uh, in terms of saying uh, why they came to work with us. And we even had people who said, I've been on your newsletter for four years and I'm just now getting in touch because I've been promoted and I have budget. Uh, so um, I, th- I think that you know, that, uh, that is brand building, right? Like we were a performance agency. We were actually running some PPC on the term growth hacking, which, which worked pretty well. Uh, we did get a couple of big customers through that, but, uh, but by and large, it was, it was the strength of our brand, um, that, uh, drove, uh, leads for us. And, um, you know, we, we didn't really need any other channel to be honest. Great. Thank you for sharing those personal experiences. Cause that is really, really interesting as well. So, um, I'm conscious of time, but do you guys have uh, plans to collaborate on more content in the future or more research? I'm always happy to. <laughs> yeah, we should. We definitely should. Well, that, look, that's great. Thank you. I'm really pleased that you're going to hopefully collaborate again. So please do keep us posted because we'd love to uh, be able to support that research. So listen, Mike and Sam, thank you both very much for joining us, for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. For those of you who want to know more, uh, Walk subscribers can access Mike and Sam's article on walk.com. If you haven't done so already, you may want to subscribe to the Walk podcast on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss another episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.